Uh, we're going to get started um, on our seminar today. Um, I have um, someone handing out a uh, handout. The handout is um, a piece I wrote for the review a decade ago. I think the issues are still relevant. Um, this is the third two-part series that we'll be covering today, and I'll just highlight what we have covered so far. We had um, great turnout yesterday, and um, today's the most important of the three, I think. So um, the first series last um, yesterday, we talked about the scientific research that suggests that all human beings have a proclivity, it seems to be pretty natural, to develop in-group favoritism and out-group discrimination. That as soon as people can identify themselves as a group distinct from another group, they tend to develop positive feelings towards their group and negative feelings towards the other group and tend to negatively stereotype. And we looked at the example of Jesus in his ministry, how he related to people. Um, and the point that I want to make, I wanted to make yesterday was that good intentions are not enough because uh, many people rise above their, their good intentions and in fact do, do negative things um, in terms of relating to others. And we looked at examples uh, even more recently, what happened among Seventh-day Adventists in Rwanda um, during the genocide, where uh, an Adventist conference president and his son, a medical doctor, were um, extradited from Laredo, Texas, by the United Nations to face crimes against humanity for what they had done in organizing a massacre on Sabbath morning at 9 o'clock, killing over 2,000 Seventh-day Adventists, who, because they belonged to the different group. And so we, we can't sit in complacency and say this is not our problem because all of us are capable of those natural tendencies. Uh, in the afternoon, our two-part series looked at separation and organizational structures that are organized separately on the basis of race. We looked at Zimbabwe, we looked at South Africa, and we looked at the United States. In the United States, we particularly looked at the history of how our conferences were organized. We looked at S Sister White's role and her teaching on race over time. Many Adventists believe, I have been told so by Adventists in the U.S. and in South Africa, that Sister White wanted racial separation. And the segregation they were having in South Africa was exactly what Sister White wanted. Uh, we looked at her statements and what she really did teach and didn't teach, and saw that Sister White, in fact, was a champion of racial equality and only on the very uh, very difficult circumstances when uh, whites in the South who were working among blacks, her son, Edson White, being chief among that, um, when they were actually shot at and almost were killed, she said, you've got to work separately until the Lord chooses a better way because we will be unable to continue our ministry, thank you so much, uh, working either among blacks or whites in the South. We then looked at another myth, um, and that is the myth that's widely held, both among black and white Adventists, that black or regional conferences exist because blacks demanded them. In fact, regional conferences existed because a white, Advent, a black Adventist woman died um, because she was refused admission at uh, the Washington Adventist Hospital. And blacks formed an organization demanding equality within the Adventist church. At the time, in 1943, um, Andrews was the only Adventist institution accepting black students. 
um, black students who were paying tithe, black Adventists who were playing tithe could not attend most Adventist campgrounds, uh, could not go to Adventist hospitals. Um, uh, back in 1943, a black minister attended a meeting at a general conference. The Review and Herald cafeteria was next door. Um, when the meeting broke for lunch, the white ministers could go to the Review and Herald cafeteria. Black ministers would have to go down the street to find a colored-only cafeteria. So that was the state of disunity. We reflected the culture. That's where the American society was, but the Adventist, Adventism was exactly the same. But the death of this Adventist, which was reported nationally um, in the black press in particular, um, really formed, caused an organization to be formed that didn't demand black conference, demanded equality demanded integration. We are tithe-paying Adventists. We want to be a part of the Adventist community. We should not have discrimination. And the solution proposed by the GC in response to those demands was, why don't you start your own conferences? Um, and so uh, th that's the history. Today, what we want to consider in, in the two series, it's, it's really on this one topic, um, of Christian unity. We want to take an in-depth look today in, in the first hour and the second hour of what the spirit of prophecy and the Bible has to say about Christian unity. Um, I'm not talking about the racial divide because Christian unity is much, much bigger than the, the racial divide. It has to do with um, a number of people just came in, my helpers who were handing out um, handouts. Could you please help those who just got in to have one? We, we, so we really want to do a study of the Bible and spirit of prophecy to understand um, what it says um, in terms of how we get it, what are the enemies of unity, and how can we have the unity that God desired. Um, this is a seminar. I may, I may get excited and preach at times, but this is a seminar, so um, it's informal. Um, do engage in dialogue. Um, do raise your hand if you have a question or a comment as we proceed. I'm, I'm happy to, to entertain uh, questions, especially as we have a much smaller group today. Um, but let's bow our heads as we pray um, before we begin. Father in heaven, we thank you so very much for the promises you have given us in your word. We thank you so much for your grace that is greater than all of our sin. We thank you so much for the call that you have given us to become one even as you are one. Bless us today as we open the pages of your word. Give us your wisdom, give us your understanding. But most of all, Lord, make us what we are not and give us the power of the Holy Spirit so that we can go forth from this place to become what you would want us to be so that we can bear the witness that the world is looking for and go home to live with you forever. Is our prayer in the wonderful name of Jesus. Amen. Okay. Um, any questions before I begin on any of the things I said? I said a lot. I, I did four hours and five minutes. So if I, if anyone had a question on anything I said, okay. If yes. About how the black conferences got started. Yes. Were they in certain places or were they in an area where other white Okay, a, a question, a, a little child to lead them, so he had a question about when black conferences got started, were they in particular areas or were they in areas where there were white conferences? What, the, what happened within the church was within union conferences that existed, they took all of the black churches in a particular union conference and made them a separate conference. So uh, an example of that, what, where, do, where do you live? 
Huntsville, Alabama. So Huntsville, Alabama is in the Southern Union, is the, and all the black churches in the Southern Union are part of the South Atlantic. Am I saying this right? South Central. Okay, got it, got it wrong. South Atlantic covers North Carolina, right? And, and so on. South Central Conference. And so there's overlap in, in territory between it and other conferences. Many of the other conferences are organized along state lines, and the regional conferences go across all the states in a particular union. Hmm? Yes. Okay. All right. Thanks. Any, any other questions or comments? Okay, what we want to do, um, we will spend a lot of time, but all of my presentations I began with, with two um, uh, uh, reminders. So we will come back to John um, uh, 17, the prayer of Christ. But I, I begin with these two reminders, is, is the call and the promise. And the, the point is, three times in John 17, Jesus declares that his burden, his prayer, was that his followers would be one. Um, and I emphasize that one of the things we don't see is the, the centrality that Jesus gave to the, the need for Christian unity and the fact that unity is a powerful mechanism of witnessing. He said, when we are one, then the world may know and believe that he has been sent to the world. Um, when we are one, and when we are perfected in unity, then the world will know that he has been sent. So the unity among Christ's followers, Jesus himself said, is a powerful um, sign and evidence of unity, and it's one that will have an impact on convicting the world. Um, love and unity go together. You can't have unity without love. And here is a powerful promise. Um, Jesus, uh, Spirit of Prophecy says, Testimonies to Church, Volume 9, page 189, that if we humble ourselves before God and become kind and courteous, tender-hearted and pitiful, there would be 100 conversions to the truth where now there is only one. Wouldn't it be amazing if in your church, for every one conversion, there would be 100? Well, we want to talk about how do we get this kind of love that the Bible is calling us to. But let me begin with uh, my presentation today just by giving you a little background of, of some of the challenges that the Adventist Church faces today. In fact, I would say that the challenges around race, ethnicity, nationality, and nationalism and is, is big, is, is a major challenge that the Adventist Church faces today. There have been, in fact, dramatic demographic changes in the Adventist Church um, started in the United States. Today, the Adventist Church worldwide membership um, in, the U in the U.S. is relatively small out of the entire total membership, and it's estimated that only about 10% of the worldwide membership of the Adventist Church is white. Um, whites are about 45% of the North American division membership. Um, about 20% of the Atlantic Union is white, and about 40% of the Southern Union is white. Those are examples of two unions where the majority of the membership is, in fact, uh, non-white. Hispanics, about 12% of the North American Division membership, and one of the more rapidly growing groups within the church today is the Hispanic uh, population. Black Adventists, uh, three times the percentage of, of, of Adventists compared to their percentage in the population. So they're 12% of the U.S. population, but about 36 to 38% of the Adventist church in the North American division. Uh, very strikingly, 75% of new members annually in the North American division, and this is the division uh, statistics, are immigrants from countries in the developing world. 
One of the striking take-home points about this is the Adventist Church in the North American division now is not winning the native-born population of any race. Most people being baptized or joining the church or profession of faith annually uh, in the United States and Canada are immigrants. Um, most um, blacks are black immigrants. Most Hispanics are Hispanic immigrants. Most Asians are Asian immigrants. So the Adventist church is largely becoming an immigrant church. And that is true of Adventism in many of the um, um, what I would call Western industrialized countries. If you go to many of the, the, the uh, European countries, if you go to London, you go to Paris, uh, you go to Amsterdam, much of Adventism is in fact reflects uh, the, an immigrant uh, a church. So we, we really are facing challenges as a church in reaching um, the secular mind and, and reaching the secular mind in advanced industrialized countries. But I think it's not just the secular mind. Um, according to Gallup's uh, research done by Gallup, the most religious subgroup in the developing world is African Americans. Black people in the U.S. are the most religious people of any of the 20 major industrialized countries. And even that group, Adventism, is not reaching. Most blacks being baptized in North American division today are immigrants from the Caribbean and from Africa. So the church is not even successful in winning a very religious subgroup. Um, so it's, we, we have major challenges, and I'm, I'm, I'm suggesting divided we fall. One of the reasons, the spirit of prophecy says it, that we're not doing as much as well as we could is, is division. Uh, I'm not going to spend time on this. I talked of some of this um, yesterday briefly, but there have been several examples in recent times. Um, they're typically not reported in the review, but where Adventists have been involved in ethnic conflict in the world. Um, in the Solomon Islands, there was an AMCU, and Adventists were among the people involved, not the church, but Adventist members. Uh, in the Fiji parliament held hostage, the early report said that it was, was Adventists involved. Well, there were there was an Andrews University alumnus and other former Adventists that were involved. Um, I mentioned the Rwanda genocide. Um, there were wonderful examples out of Rwanda where Adventists of one ethnic group helped Adventists of the other ethnic group and saved them uh, uh, from, from death. So I don't want to give the impression that all that happened was bad and all that happened was failure. There were beautiful stories of success where Adventist Hutus rescued Adventist Tutsis and protected them. Um, there are open tensions between Croatian and Serbian Seventh-day Adventists in the early 1990s that led the, the, in the former Yugoslavia to split into two conferences because the Serbs and the Croats Adventists couldn't get along together. And then they were divided into two separate conferences. Um, the brothers and sisters in the Lord couldn't work together. Um, I'm a sociologist, and sociologists study race in American society. And sociologists talk about something called the tipping point. Um, and it's true across a range of institutions in American society. And that is when the percentage of blacks reaches about 25%, whites leave. Um, and it doesn't matter whether it's a neighborhood, whether it's an institutional context, whether it's a church context, um, it's, it's a phenomenon that's well documented and, and it's pretty robust. And so although about 25% of black Adventists in North American division hold membership in predominantly white churches, uh, very few whites hold membership in predominantly black churches. I am suggesting to you that racial division within the North American division is costly in terms of redundancy. I live in Boston now. I used to live in the Ann Arbor, Michigan area. Um, there were two Adventist high schools within about three miles from each other. 
one operated by the Michigan Conference, historically white conference, one operated by the Lake Region Conference, historically black conference, and two Adventist high schools. And I had a friend who came to town and was looking for a place to send his kids, and he went and visited both schools, and he came back to me and he said, David, there are two half schools. He says, why don't we combine our resources and have one excellent school? Why do you have two Adventist high schools within three miles of each other? Um, but I, I think most importantly, and I'm not into the, the politics and so on, but it's what it says, what it does to the Christian image that we present to the world. And, and that, that is my burden of the Christian image we present to the world. I'm not going to talk about it today. I talked about it yesterday. Is what just recently happened in South Africa, <clears throat> where um, the, the church, Division, GC, Union, forced white conferences to merge with the black and colored conferences, and groups of white Adventists sued the Union Conference and the Division because of the reorganization. And just in October, this is not ancient history, in October of this year, um, the High Court in South Africa had to rule on this case, upheld the right of the Adventists to sue, but, but threw out the case saying the higher organizations had a right to do what they had done in bringing the churches together. But think of how embarrassing that is for the Adventist church. Six Adventist churches from one tr traditionally white conference and two from the other conference are suing the division and the union because you forced them to merge together with their brothers and sisters of a different race. This is not ancient history. In fact, I read from the high court judge ruling on the case said, you seem to be men of God and it would be great if you guys could resolve this on your own. But if you can't, I will rule. So it's, it's, it's just a terrible image to, to the church. Um, these are not statements from Adventists. These are statements I've picked from other research out there. Um, there is a lot of tension between the races in the United States. And this is uh, Elizabeth in Newton, Massachusetts said, I'm fed up with whites who don't have a clue about what it feels like to be continually day in and day out in every social and professional situation judged first by the color of their skin. Whites simply have no basis upon which to make an informed judgment about whether racism exists in the country. Um, does racism exist in the country? I'll show you a few quick slides from my own um, uh, work, related to work that I do professionally. Um, America has an apartheid system. We tend not to talk about it, but it's really powerful. And just for comparison purposes, I'm showing um, the level, the, the segregation index in South Africa during apartheid, it was 90. 90 means that 90% of black South Africans would have to move in order to have an even distribution of blacks and whites in South Africa. What I'm showing you here is census data for the largest cities, several of the largest cities in the US um, in the 2000 census. And you could see the level of segregation in America's largest cities are only slightly lower than it was on the legally mandated apartheid in South Africa. Researchers call this residential segregation. And it has been known by scholars for a long time. Myrtle wrote an important book on the American dilemma in 1944. He said, Understanding the racial division by residents was basic to understanding racial inequality in America. The Kerner Commission said it was the source of racial inequality. John Seller, historian at Duke University, said that having the races live separately in the U.S. was the single most successful domestic policy of the 20th century in America. One of the single, I don't say, he wasn't say the most successful, but one of the most successful domestic policies in the U.S. in the 20th century. More people have just walked in. Could you go back and give them a handout? 
Thank you so much, my helpers. Um, so the, the point I'm making is th there's dramatic segregation. What does the segregation have consequences? This is a study by Harvard economist David Cutler. He finds that if you could eliminate the separation by race and residence in the US, you would completely erase black-white differences in income, education, and unemployment, and reduce black-white differences in single motherhoods by two-thirds. Because what we have in the US is the concentration of poverty and social ills that co-occur with the degree of residential segregation. Two sociologists writing about this pointed out that the worst urban context in which whites reside is considerably better than the average context of black communities. I, I've mentioned this only to say is that blacks and whites live in very different worlds even though they live in the same society um, and live with def very different levels of, of inequality. So this is context. Um, this is from the pre economic report of the president in 1998 showing racial inequality in income in the US. And what I'm showing you is how much money black families earn on average compared to white income. The high point was 1978 where um, blacks earned 59 cents for every dollar white black, um, every dollar whites earned. That's how you interpret this chart. And you could see throughout the 80s it fell to lower levels than that, as low as 55 cents in 1982. And it wasn't until the 1990s that we got up to 60 cents. Today it's about 64 cents. So there's a racial gap in income. Um, there's even a much larger racial gap in wealth. For every dollar of wealth whites have, blacks have nine cents and Latinos have 12 cents. So there are huge differences in economic resources within the church that I think shapes people's perspectives in dramatic ways that we seldom think about. There are also huge differences within the church. Can you define okay, someone asked, could I define wealth? Um, what researchers call wealth, income is the flow of money into the household, is your salary, your income. Wealth is the economic reserves the household has. So wealth refers to the money you have in the bank, the equity in your home, the, the value of the, the second home that you own or the land that you own or boat that you own. It's your property. And to define wealth, we, we take all of your assets, like house and land and car, and their value, the equity in those properties, and we subtract from that all of your liabilities, all of your debts. If you have credit card debt or mortgages, you subtract that, and what's left is net worth or equity. Okay, there, there are huge differences by class in the US, and I just to show you how class matters, it matters for virtually everything. But this is just the old SAT scores, which was 1,200 was the highest score. This is national data from ETS in Princeton, New Jersey, looking at SAT scores. If those persons are not from the US who see SAT scores, it's the score that students take at the end of high school um, that determines the quality of school they get into. But I'm showing you how it's strongly patterned by family income. So family income and economic resources dramatically determines outcomes in the US. I also want to share with you one other example of the dramatic example that discrimination still exists in the United States even though we uh, do very well on endorsement of the principle of equality. The best evidence of that comes from studies where you take black and white persons who are identical in every regard, the only thing that differs is their race. So in employment, you take people with fake um, uh, resumes and you send them to apply for jobs. This was done in a study in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, um, for black uh, two black men and two white males were sent to apply for 350 entry-level jobs. They all were using a fake resume, but their resumes were identical. One black and one white mentioned that he had served an 18-month prison sentence for cocaine possession. 
what this found was that you could see the blacks and whites who did not have a criminal record were more likely to get callbacks for a job than those who did. But what is very striking here, you can see, is the black male who had no criminal record was less likely to get a callback than a white male who's, uh, than, than a white male with a criminal record. So the black male whose record was clean was less likely to get a criminal record, a, a callback for a job than a white male with a criminal record. But you could see the dramatic differences. And this is just one example of hundreds of sociological studies that show these things exist. Many people think they don't, but the evidence is quite <coughs> overwhelming. There's also evidence that discrimination matters in terms of health. Why do I mention all of this before I talk about unity? I think it's important to have an appreciation of the shoes within which people walk um, so that you can un helps you to understand where people call, come from in, in terms of their perspectives. I'm going to talk about White's perspectives in a minute. But before I move on from that, I want to share with you a quotation from Sister White in the book The Southern Work. Um, that these issues of social inequality that Adventists tend not to be very involved in. We tend historically to be involved in issues linked to temperance, um, an issue linked to Sabbath observance politically, but not to get involved in issues of social inequality. I, I, this is an important context by looking at what Sister White had to say about God's concern about the plight of blacks in the U.S. Ellen White wrote, the Hebrew nation is not the only nation that has been in cruel bondage and whose groanings have come to the ears of the Lord of hosts. The Lord God of Israel has looked upon the vast number of human beings who were held in slavery in the United States of America. More people are walking in. Take them a hand out for me. God saw the blood, the fall blood of slavery upon this land. He marked the sufferings that were endured by the colored people. He moved upon the hearts of men to work in behalf of those who were so cruelly oppressed. And look at this next statement, Sister White speaking, God spoke concerning the captivity of the colored people as verily as he did concerning the Hebrew slaves. So if you study American history, you'd read about the role of Abraham Lincoln and so on. I'm saying from a spiritual perspective, Sister White is saying we are looking at the activity of God. God acted. The Lord wrought in freeing the southern slaves. Not the U.S. Congress did, but the Lord wrought. But he designed to work still further for them as he did for the children of Israel, whom he took forth to educate, to refine, and ennoble. So th these issues of inequality are issues that concerns God. On the other hand, I've talked about what whites, what African Americans face in the United States. Um, there's also a lot of frustration on the part of whites. And here's an example. I'm picking this again from a published paper. Not, this is not Adventist speaking. I firmly believe, this unidentified read in Irvington, New York, said that so-called minorities are taking over our country. I'm very tired of hearing about how hard they have it here. If they don't like the way they're treated, they need to go back to where they came from. Here is another perspective. Today, the group most discriminated against is white males. No place that I'm aware of makes people ride in the back of the bus or use different restrooms in this day and age. We got the message. We made corrections. Get on with it. So there's frustration and anger on one hand and, and on the other hand. Uh, an example of how the two races view things very differently, this is national data. 31% of whites feel affirmative action is necessary compared to 81% of blacks support affirmative action. So there's very different perceptions on that and on a range of other social um, issues. However, I do think there is enormous common ground. Regardless of race, 
and ethnicity, we all share common concerns about finances, about health, about the well-being of our families. People of color and whites together dislike high taxes, crime, poverty, poorly trained teachers, inferior schools, job loss, and the list goes on and on. Much more important, and this is my burden today, within the household of faith, we have a common vision for the future and a common source of power, a common goal that we're working on, a common savior, a common Holy Spirit who is able to enable us to do wonderful things. And so we begin with John 17. In verse 11, Jesus, his final prayer, he's facing Golgotha's hill. The burden of his soul is being poured out. I am no longer in the world, Jesus prays to his father, and yet they are in the world. Holy Father, keep them in your name that they may be one, even as we are one. Verse 21, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, just as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity, so that the world may know that you sent me. Christ's burden, is for the salvation of men. As he faced Golgotha's hill, as he faced dark Gethsemane, as he looks ahead to the loneliness of the cross and the bitter cup that he has to drink, Christ's soul trembles as he recognizes that it would all be in vain unless the world knew about his sacrifice. Somebody had to tell them. Somebody had to let the world know how much God loved them. Somebody had to lift him up so that he could draw all men unto himself. And Jesus recognized that there was only one way. There was only one plan that would work. Jesus recognized that all of his eggs were in one basket. The only way that the world would be convicted of the power of his saving grace is that he would have to provide the ultimate demonstration of the power of the cross to change human nature. Jesus recognized that he would have to convince a skeptical world that there was power in his blood to turn hatred into love, to turn selfishness into self-giving, to turn greed into generosity, and to turn indifference into love and service. Yes, Jesus was convinced that the only way that the world would believe in him was to show them men and women who could live together in unity. The oneness of his followers would be the acid test of his authenticity and the ultimate proof of the power of the gospel. And Christ's plea on that night for this demonstration of unity was never more urgent than today. We live in a divided world. Groups within our society are divided on the basis of race, on nationality, of tribe, of class, and of gender the rich versus the poor, the haves versus the have-nots. And all of the divisions of the world are replicated in the church. Everyone in our world is simply looking out for himself. The motto of our age appears to be, get out of my way and let me get what I can for myself while the getting is good. Social scientific studies indicate that there's only a superficial concern on the part of most Americans to the plight of those who are disadvantaged. People are committed to principles of justice and equity, but in the abstract. Christians can, Christians must take a bold lead in building unity in the church and in our world. Jesus wants his followers to live lives that testify that the love of God 
can destroy all human barriers that separates people. This is the way, Jesus says, that we can prove to the world that he is the light of the world. What Jesus is saying, what will stir the world is not our claims to faith, it's not our statement of 27 beliefs, but it's when our faith is demonstrated in action and that is accomplishing that which is impossible to do without divine assistance. What will attract the attention of the world is not the truth of our doctrines, but a manifestation of the love of our doctrines in our lives. It was Jesus who said that all of Scripture can be summarized into one four-letter word, L-O-V-E, love to God and love to man. The focus on the world clearly indicates that Jesus' object Jesus' burden the night before he died is the salvation of mankind and his saving efforts to extend it. However, Jesus recognizes that he can reach the world only through his followers, only as his followers become transformed with a level of unity that the world has never seen. Christ prayed, I'm saying, for a unity that would convince the world of the truth of Christianity and the power of the gospel. You see, it is more natural for men to be divided than to be united. It is more human for men to fly apart than to come together. Real unity between Christians would be a supernatural fact that would require a supernatural explanation. Faced by the disunity of Christians, the world cannot see the supreme value of the Christian faith. It is our individual duty as Christians to demonstrate the unity of love with our fellow man, which is the answer to Christ's prayer. The rank and file of our churches can do much, and our leaders too must do much. Even if our leaders refuse to do what they need to do, we need to be faithful to Christ's commission and do what God has called us to do. Unity is the fruit of love, and love is the evidence of discipleship. Where this oneness exists, here's this, this statement from Desire of Ages, all who are imbued with his spirit will love as he loved. The very principle that actuated Christ will actuate them in all of their dealing one with another. This love is the evidence of discipleship. So it's the love of God that's the evidence of discipleship. When men are bound together, not by force or self-interest, but by love, they show the working of an influence that is above every human influence. And that's what Jesus is saying in John 17. This is supernatural. This is not natural to occur on its own. Where this oneness exists, where this unity exists, it is evidence that the image of God is being restored in humanity. This love manifested in the church will surely stir the wrath of Satan. I shared another quotation I love very much yesterday from Price Object Lessons, which said the completeness of Christian character is attained when the impulse to help and bless others springs constantly from within. Another statement from the Spirit of Prophecy, Testimonies to the Church, Volume 9, page 194. Unity existing among the followers of Christ is an evidence that the Father has sent His Son 
to save sinners. It is a witness to his power, for nothing short of the miraculous power of God can bring human beings with their different temperaments together in harmonious action, their one aim being to speak the truth in love. So unity is that dramatic demonstration of the power of God that the world is waiting for. John 17 talks about the good fruit of the church's oneness. It will be evidence, Jesus says, of the truth of Christianity and the means of bringing others to embrace the gospel of Jesus. Unity among Christ's followers will make a grand impression on the world at large. It will recommend Christianity to the world. When the world sees so many of those that were its children change from what they themselves were, they will be ready to say, we will go with you because we can see that God is with you. We can see that something special is occurring among you. The uniting of Christians in love and charity is the beauty of our profession that will invite others to join us. When going to church, instead of causing quarrels among Christians, makes strife to cease. When the gospel of Christ makes men and women kind and loving, when Christians become people who seek to preserve and promote peace, people will take notice that we have been with Jesus. They will take notice that we are different. Jesus said, the world will know and the world will believe when his followers have the oneness that he shares with his Father. And it's only the power of God that can make, bring different people with different capacities, different tempers, different interests, and combine them into one body, one faith, one heart, one love. Patriarch and Prophets, page 520. It is the will of God that union and brotherly love should exist among his people. While we are not to sacrifice one principle of truth, so we don't compromise to, to have unity, we don't sacrifice one principle of truth, it should be our constant aim to reach this state of unity. This is the evidence of our discipleship. And one of my burdens is, it's not only that we are disunited, but we are content in our literacy and condition. We are satisfied with the status quo. It should be our constant aim to reach the state of unity that God is calling us to. Why? Because Jesus says, the power that will attract the world, by this shall all men know that you are my disciples. By your vegetarian diet, I'm a vegetarian, don't misunderstand me. I'm a health educator. <laughs> I, I believe in the health message, but it's if we have love one for another. Uh, as the Living Bible puts it, your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. Another paraphrase, the message. This is how everyone will recognize that you are my disciples when they see the love that you have for each other. So we, we need to have that love. Um, that is, is, is the power that God is calling us to. First Peter 3, 8 and 9. Be all of one mind, having compassion one of another. Love as brethren, be pitiful, be courteous, not rendering evil for evil or railing for railing, but contrarywise blessing, knowing that ye are thereunto called, that ye should inherit a blessing. We have been called to be people who are engaged in love for each other. What does God really want from us? 
Testimonies to the Church, Volume 8, page 183. It is not a great number of institutions. It is not large buildings and outward display that God requires, but the harmonious action of a peculiar people, a people chosen by God and precious, united with one another, their life hid with Christ in God. Every man and woman is to stand in his lot and place, exerting a right influence in thought, word, and deed. When all God's workers do this, and not until then, his work will be a complete symmetrical whole. So it's really looking for us to come together in love, in action, harmonious action, working together to make a difference in the world. Here is another quotation. There's a lot in the spirit of prophecy on unity and on its centrality. Testimonies to the Church, volume 9, page 221. This is where I got the title of my talk from. If Christians were to act in concert, moving forward as one under the direction of one power for the accomplishment of one purpose, they would move the world. I want to see us move the world. I think that's what the time has come when the world is looking for the power of God to be manifested. We have to be united. We have to move together as one. Now, unity does not mean uniformity. It does not mean losing our individuality. It does mean bringing all of our talents and all of our gifts together to work for a common purpose. The prophet Ezekiel saw the church working in this way, and he described it as a wheel in the middle of a wheel. The appearance of the living creatures were connected with the wheels, and all seemed intricate and unexplainable. But the hand of infinite wisdom is seen among the wheels, and perfect order is the result of its work. Every wheel, independent, but directed by God, is in perfect harmony with every other wheel. Um, then each one of us needs to find our place as a wheel, as the body of Christ, different parts of the body that the scripture uses, different images, to capture the fact that all of us need to be working together. We need to give all we can. And by the way, this is a really important point before I delve more deeply into the topic of unity. One of the things about unity, it means that each one of us, as fellow Christians, need to come before the Lord and place all that we have and all that we are on the altar of sacrifice. We can't claim that we want unity, but we don't want to be engaged in God's work. We don't want to accept positions in the church. We don't want to use our talents for the Lord. God has called us to use the gifts that he has given us to work harmoniously. So we have to give of ourselves in order to have that unity. In fact, the spirit of prophecy, Christ Subject Lessons, page 363. Unto whomsoever much is given, of him shall much be required. She quotes from Luke. We shall individually be held responsible. The first time I read this, as a young, much younger person, it really struck me. We shall individually be held responsible for doing one jot less than we have the ability to do. God wants each one of us to give our all to his service. The Lord measures with exactness, not just how much we did, but every possibility for service. He looks, his standard is not what we accomplished, but what we could have accomplished. The unused capabilities are as much brought into account as those that are improved. 
Ellen White continues, for all that we might become through the right use of our talents, God holds us responsible. So we really have to give our all. And then she continues, and I can't explain this. If someone can, help me. But this is the same passage, paragraph I'm reading from Christ Subject Lessons. We shall be judged, Ellen White says, according to what we have done. Oh, sorry, sorry. We shall be judged according to what we ought to have done, but did not accomplish because we did not use our powers to glorify God. And she continues, even if we do not lose our souls, we shall realize in eternity the result of our unused talents. That's striking. She continues, for all the knowledge and ability that we might have gained and did not, there will be an eternal loss. But when we give ourselves wholly to God and in our work follow his directions, he makes himself responsible for its accomplishment. Two things, the, the thing I can't understand, I don't understand what it means that I'm saved and I'm in heaven, but I'm still suffering an eternal loss because I didn't give my all in service to God on earth. Mind-boggling, I can't fully explain it. But that's what she says. We suffer an eternal loss because we didn't give our all to God. And I like the way the paragraph ends with hope because we could become discouraged. But she says, when we give ourselves wholly to God, and that's what unity requires us, to give God our all, and in our work follow his di directions, he makes himself responsible for its accomplishment. A, a, a statement I like very much is that God doesn't call anyone to failure, he guarantees success. If we only give God our all, we don't have to worry about the results. We don't have to worry about the outcome. We don't have to be fearful. God himself is going to be responsible for the success. Give God your all, and he's going to take care of the rest. You don't, it takes away fear. It takes away anxiety. It takes away nervousness. You do your best for the Lord, and he is going to work out the results. A powerful promise. But the point I'm emphasizing is the point that we have to give God our all in order to have unity. Um, in fact, this unity must be visible to the world. The world must see this living brotherhood in Christ. It must show itself strong enough to destroy sectarianism, selfishness, the apathy that eats out the heart of Christianity. The Spirit of Christ will draw members of his family together as one family, prompting them to love each other and to work together for the good of the world. In fact, 70, Testament to the Church, Volume 7, page 240, it says, the world is looking with gratification at a disunion among Christians. Infidelity is well pleased. God is calling for a change among his people. Union with Christ and with one another is our only safety in these last days. Let us not make it possible for Satan to point to our church members saying, Behold how these people, standing honor of the banner of Christ, hate one another. We have nothing to fear. This is the devil speaking. We have nothing to fear from them while they spend more strength fighting one another than in warfare with my forces. Let's silence the devil. Let's not have him use us to point to the failure of the Lord's work and what can be done in the world. 
In fact, 1 John 3.14 says, We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. He who does not love abides um, in death. So the, the challenge is that Christians, we can demonstrate that the Bible, which is the basis of all faith, can speak to our times. As Christians, we can declare that Christ can and does break down the barriers that separate us from each other. Spiritual regeneration is the dynamic um, of, of social reform. Spiritual generation can be active in our churches, making a difference in our lives. And John 17 emphasizes that this unity of Christ followers is fundamentally inescapable as a central part of the gospel. Um, it, it's something we cannot get away from, the, the love and the unity of the followers of Christ. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. Um, in 1 John, it also says, um, we, we know we've passed because we love the brethren and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. You know, that's actually a, a striking a point that's not in my notes, but um, Spirit of Prophecy says, you know, that we have a responsibility to each other. And she elaborates on Matthew 18, where it says, if, if your brother sins, you need to go and talk to that person. And she says two things in the book, Desire of Ages, that are quite striking. One is, is that if you fail, if you neglect the duty of going to talk to your brother who is failing, God holds you responsible for the sin that that person committed. And she continues, for evils that we might have checked, we are just as responsible as if we did the acts ourselves. Which is striking, that I can be held responsible by God for things you did because I had the opportunity to stand alongside you and put my, sh my hand over around your shoulder and talk to you about it, and I didn't. God holds me responsible for your errors. However, she also says that we are not ready to go and correct someone until we feel ready to give our life for that person. That would eliminate a whole lot of problems in the church. If we can cultivate that attitude, yes, I have a burden for you, Yes, I will reach out and talk to you, but I will not do that unless I feel I can give my life for you. It's, it's love that has to act. That's what will make my talking to you effective because you will sense the burden of love. And the purpose of talking is not to correct them, is not to judge them. The purpose, the Bible says, is to restore that person. How powerful is this unity we are talking about? Testimonies to the Church, Volume 8, page 242. Harmony and union existing among men of varied dispositions is the strongest witness that can be borne that God has sent his son into the world to save sinners. It is our privilege to bear this witness. Isn't that striking? Ellen White says, the strongest witness that can be borne to the world that God has sent his son into the world to save sinners is the harmony and unity among the followers of Christ. Unity is witnessing. Unity is in and of itself evangelism. 
because it will have that power to convict um, the world. How do we get this unity? What are the next steps? What, what do we need to do? How can we get this unity? Um, maybe before I, I move on to talk about how we can get this unity and what the barriers are to unity, and then we're almost up on our break time, not quite, got a couple minutes. Are, are there any questions for me on, on the material I've covered from the Bible and Spirit of Prophecy so far? Okay, don't all speak at the same time. Okay, maybe let, let me just share a couple quotations on how we get the unity and then we'll take our break. We are a few minutes uh, from our break. Um, the, the point, um, if you go back to John 17, Jesus says that they all may be one. I in them and thou in me. The secret of unity, he says, I in them and thou in me. He is in the Father. Okay, the, or the Father is in him, and, and, and I in them, and he will be in us. So the, the secret of unity, it's not something that we can get of our own, but the secret is Christ abiding in our heart. Though we live in different societies, though we live in different places, though Christ followers have lived in different ages, yet we can be united because we have the constancy of the presence of God in us. Christ is the center of oneness. And we can only have this unity because of what Christ is doing in us to transform us. I in them and thou in me tells us that it's not something we can create on our own. And that's part of our problem. We've tried to do it on our own. It's not by human ingenuity and, 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 uh, that we will get this. We can have union with each other, but it's because we have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in us. Here is a quotation from um, Adventist homepage 179. The cause of division and discord in families and in the church is separation from Christ. To come near to Christ is to come near to one another. The secret of true unity in the church and in the family is not diplomacy. It is not management. It is not a superhuman effort to overcome difficulties, though Ellen White continues, though there will be much of this to do. But the secret is union with Christ. Picture a large circle, she says, from the edge of which there are many lines all running to the center. The nearer these lines approach the center, the nearer they are to one another. So that is our challenge. Our challenge is to have that un unity with Christ, to have Christ abiding in the heart, and as we come closer to Christ, he is in all of us, we will become closer to each other because Christ is the uniting force that keeps us um, uh, together. The basic cause of all this harmony is the reality of human sinfulness. When sin entered the world, we lost union with God, and that destroyed our relationship with our fellow man. When we accept Christ, he gives us a new heart, and he gives us a new affection, he gives us new love. In our designs, in our desires, in our prayers, though we differ in words, though we differ in how we talk to God, we still can pray for the same things. We can still view every child of humanity the way Christ views them, and we can have that commonality 
because of the, the fact that all of us have Christ together. Um, the last text I'm going to leave us with, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. You're still male when you become a Christian. You're still female. You're still Jew or Greek. But Jesus, or Paul is saying here, and the Bible is saying here, these external things no longer matter. They no longer become the basis for our relationships. They no longer become the basis for how we relate to each other, how we treat others. Why? Because we are all one in Christ Jesus. Let me stop here. We'll take a break. Um, I will continue uh, for the next hour, those of you who are able to come back, talking about what are the barriers to unity uh, that the Bible and Spirit of Prophecy identify and what are the steps we need to follow to really make this unity real in our lives. So thank you and um, it's our hour is up. This media was produced by Audioverse for GYC, Generation of Youth for Christ. If you would like to learn more about GYC, please visit www.gycweb.org. Or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.